April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. We are delighted to be joined today by a gentleman who has joined us in the past, John Delavolpe, who is... uh, a professor at Harvard and is kind of the leading guru on studies about young voters. Uh, and the other day I was watching television and there you were, John. Uh, and uh, <laughs> you were talking about your most recent study of the young electorate. Uh, and I thought it was fascinating. And so I thought, well, we have 30 minutes here and I can just introduce you that you can talk for 29 minutes and then I'll thank you. <laughs> It is so great to be back uh, with you, David. I really appreciate that. What's your time? Okay, I'm going. Um, no, but uh, thank you, you know, again, for the opportunity and for the your, your interest, right? Uh, and young people, it's important. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, I just, why don't, I mean, why don't you stop with your, start with the top lines from the study, the things that struck you the most, uh, and then we can go from there. Sure. Um, let me put this just in a little bit of uh, of context for you and your listeners. This is a project that I um, can't believe I've been doing this for, for 45 semesters, for 22 years now. You know, um, I work in concert with a very talented group of undergraduates to for me to help shape the issues that they care about into a questionnaire that we can then conduct a, 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 a poll of a couple of thousand people. So the first group of, of young voters across the country. The first group of young voters you studied are now eligible for AARP. <laughs> Pretty much, they they call themselves right the elder elder millennials, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, elder elder millennials. You know, just tells you where I am. By the way, in that second class of students, you know, included Pete Buttigieg, right, Secretary Pete. Wow. So uh, um, that's. Um, it's been it's been such a, a fun thing. So uh, so we have a lot of context, right? And we can talk about some of the changes that we've seen over time. But the way in which I think the headline from this from the study, honestly, uh, David, is this is a generation that feels besieged. Okay, um, and what I mean by that is, regardless of how you kind of cut this, they feel like they are under attack in some significant way. There is heightened concern, of course. About their about their public safety, very few young people 
feel comfortable even, you know, doing the things that we took for granted, right? Going to school, walking in a mall, you know, um, actually now, you know, ringing a, a stranger's doorbell. There's that aspect of just of, of the fear of public safety that they carry with them. We were quite actually surprised at the number of young people who are concerned about themselves or people that they care about becoming homeless one day. Okay. You have like a third of younger people who have this anxiety about just the ability to, to, um, to, uh, to own or actually rent a home. And if not for a break or two that they could see themselves potentially kind of without one, that's another kind of burden they carry, um, on a regular, on a regular basis. Those are among, among the headlines, but I think, you know, the, 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 the positive aspect of this, the good news out of this is that despite these fears and then anxieties, we do see this resilience when it comes to, when it comes to, to, to politics. I think that this generation can, continues to see, as I said, themselves under attack, but they decided rather than kind of flee or to cower, they're actually going to stand up and fight for these basic rights, not just for themselves, but for other members of their community and their generation. So just to put it, what are the age parameters of the people you study? Sure. Um, we've been studying young Americans between the ages of 18 and 29. Okay. So I talk a lot about Gen Z. So this survey has slightly more Gen Z than millennials, but, you know, you basically, you know, 18 to 29 is young voters, um, most of which are Gen Z with some millennials thrown in. Um, so right. this, in, in, as far as the, you know, upcoming elections go. This is a group a lot of people talk about. Um, and, you know, the rap on young voters in the past, because it's true, is that they didn't vote in the same proportions as other portions of the population. And yet there seem to be some rumblings, and you just made some more a moment ago, that this is a group that is attuned to certain issues whether it's issues of personal safety or issues of personal freedoms or issues uh, uh, such as climate, they seem to be engaged in those issues. Is that likely to motivate them to be anomalous with uh, groups of, of this age bracket uh, in, in past elections? Well, um, I think it's, a, it's an important point you raise, and they have been anomalous for now, three elections, four elections based upon that account. So I'm not sure if it's anomalous anymore or if it's like, if it's the new standard. So to put this into perspective, in fact, um, one of the key indicators that we use to, um, to identify the number of young people who participate in elections is the voting supplement from the census, from the current population survey that was released um, uh, just a few, just a few days ago. And we saw um, that uh, this past midterm election had the second highest turnout in at least 35 years, in at least 35 years, which means that any of your listeners who are baby boomers or Gen Xers or millennials voted roughly at about the half the rate that this 18 to 29 year old cohort has been voting recently, right? Um, and while 2018 and 2020 were the high watermarks, the election results from 22, the midterms were pretty close to 20 from to 18, much closer than they were from the previous things when with other generations were, um, were in the youth cohort on the electorate. 
Um, but it's important, I think, David, that we never take this for granted, right? We never take this for granted. And there are uh, several factors. One, of course, is this concern about rights. But the other factor that's just as important in terms of whether or not a young person votes is, do they see the pro- do they understand that government can make progress? Right? Do they see the impact of their vote in 2018, 2020, and in 2022? And if they see that, if they understand that, that gives them that that's, increases their likelihood of participating in future elections um, by, a, by a pretty significant degree. So in the press a lot in the past couple of weeks. There have been a lot of stories about Joe Biden is old, Donald Trump is old, this group is not going to be able to connect to that group. Uh, uh, there, yeah. you know, the, the, our, our, we have a sort of geriatric political class that is kind of out of touch with this generation. Um, but judging from what you're saying, I, I guess the question on my mind is, does that really matter? Or are they being driven by issues? Are they being driven by the things that affect their lives um, and, you know, making an assessment of, you know, voting one way or the other will affect them personally and less, you know, the name at the top of the ballot? Well, if I ask you who the most popular candidate, you know, or elected office holder is among young people last decade, most people would say Bernie Sanders, right? You know, so it shows you right there that there's not a strong correlation between between um, you know who's popular and, and their age relative to younger voters, right? Um, so it's much more important, I think, to understand young voters through the lens of they care about issues, not individuals. They care about policies and not the age of a politician. So it's incredibly important that um, specifically. Biden, who who received you know sixty percent of the youth vote on the actual basis, Democrats in some states received seventy five percent of the youth vote actually, in, in the past midterm elections that they begin that these communications not just about messaging but about reminding um, this cohort uh, of their values and their vision and the similar similarities that they have even at um, at their age with. The similar the, with the with the um, with the hopes and dreams and vision of younger people. Where you know, if they want to communicate to them, what channels work? Complex. It's complex. So so I, I, it has to be. I think you know, multi multi mode. But what I mean by that is that um, we think about. I think uh, when I think about communicating, I think about like this, this three things. First of which is we talked about the values matter first. So what are the values are aligned? One, then the messenger. Who's the most effective, trusted, respected messenger? And then third is what's the actual message that's being communicated? Okay. So now we're in that, that second bucket of, of messengers. And clearly, you know, uh, the, the president, the principal has to kind of develop their own trust with this with these cohorts from the top down through traditional you know communications you know uh, uh, television cable traditional social channels however what's as if not more important is communicating that message to younger influencers right who can carry that that message those receipts the examples of what younger people got you know accomplished in the first couple of years in this case of the biden administration 
make sure that those are well commuted and that those young people feel empowered. That was, I think, an important story in the uh, in the midterm election. You bought the, the 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 Biden administration from the earliest days understood the power of youth influences and influencers and, um, and established a, a rapport and a relationship with them that I think paid significant dividends. So I guess the quick answer is all of these methods are important. You know, there's been a lot of conversation around TikTok. That's an important one. It's certainly not the only one. But places like TikTok and Instagram are, are important because it's really challenging to kind of pierce this bubble um, of, of, uh, of folks who care about politics. You know, it's still only a relatively small proportion. And, 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 and influencers in some of these social media sp- spaces are able to kind of extend these issues into kind of these non-political channels, which is, which is important, especially in a presidential cycle. You know, traditionally people associate young people at the beginning of their lives with being at a period of hope and idealism. Your study seems to indicate that a substantial number of young people right now are anxious, that Gen Z may be more anxious than past generations, whether it's worrying about personal safety, worrying about economic security, not believing necessarily in the American dream that things are going to get better automatically. Um, uh, Is that a fair characterization? And what do you think the consequences of that are from political perspective? What do you think, you know, where, where, where that will lead them? I mean, you, for, after, you know, after all, the Democratic Party, the president of the United States, has a leader who's, you know, very committed to this kind of happy warrior message. Right, right. Well, I, I think it, sadly, I think it is uh, fair you know, we, we, we talked earlier, this is this 18 to 29 year old cohort, roughly about 55 million young people, okay, most educated, most diverse that we've seen. So we're doing 55 million young people, um, half of which say that several days in the last two weeks, they've had feelings of nervousness, anxiety, or felt on edge. Similar number, 52% indicate they have trouble relaxing, 47% say they felt down, depressed, or hopeless. Okay, so you deal with tens of millions of, of young Americans. The younger you are, the more likely you are to um, to uh, be bothered by these problems, and it extends into high school as well, where these are even more acute. In addition to that, unfortunately, sadly, half of that number, so about a quarter, say that these feelings are so persistent they consider self harm. Several days in the last two weeks, four percent saying every single day. Right. So the message here is to every elected official, every parent, every member of our community, that wherever you are surrounded by younger people, high schools, college campuses, workplaces, et cetera, you have a handful or dozens of young people who are struggling and, and considering, you know, death by suicide on a daily basis. Right. Um, and, and we've seen this through CDC and, and, and other numbers. That's kind of one. Um, so I think it's important that we understand where this is coming from, right? And, and, and so much attention for good reason is spent on, on the role of the cell phone and social media and isolation, et cetera. But what I argue, and it's obvious through the research and the conversations I have with young people, that it's just not the, um, 
media, it's the message, right? It's the message that younger people are getting through this, right? Through not just, you know, through, through seeing George Floyd be murdered a couple of years ago, right? Through seeing time and time and time again, you know, it, um, gun violence and mission streamed on their social media channels um, and, and, and everything or the lack of things that kind of follow. So there is a sense of pessimism. The, one of the key attributes, I think, of this generation, David, is they haven't seen America at our best. You know, a millennial has a living memory of September 11th, which also means they, they remember September 12th and September 13th, when at least for a few days, weeks, maybe a few months, America came together. This generation hasn't, right? So what is important, I think, for folks like President Biden and, and others to appreciate is that they need to share that urgency. They need to share the urgency that this generation needs to see some significant progress. Currently, they, as I said, they're voting at numbers that no other generation has voted in in, in decades, but we can't take that for granted. And they need to see the, I think, effect of, uh, of their work and their participation. I, I don't know that you, you can support this, uh, with just data, but I'd be interested from having done this now for 22 years, how your perceptions of that young cadre translated into them in middle age, translated into them in the, in the middle of their careers, you know, what are leading indicators and what may be false indicators? Well, there was a study that came out of Great Britain um, over the last couple of, of months that was published, which different data set, different methodology, but I was not actually surprised, which indicated that millennials, both in the, basically in, in Western democracies, is the other uh, first generation um, that social scientists have tracked, um, were, who have gotten more progressive as they've aged, Right. Um, rather than more conservative. And that's not necessarily, um, was not necessarily kind of a, a, a big surprise because I think that a lot of the values that were determined in their teens and 20s on the issues that they care about and these basic rights seeing, you know, uh, withering rather than strengthening, I think are just continue to be more prominent, you know, um, because of the lack of progress we've collectively made. So, so that isn't surprising. I don't expect that to necessarily kind of slow down. In fact, what I see is when I compare the data from, from this study, for example, with a cohort from a study 10 years ago, is that on most of the, uh, of the significant domestic social issues of our day, of our time, this cohort is, is, is even more progressive than the millennials were, right? So, so I think this has significant ramifications for for our politics. This is happening. People are becoming more progressive based upon how a social scientist would measure that. They're not becoming more large D democratic, right? They're not, they're not identifying more as Democrats. They're not identifying more as progressives. It's just that their values um, are, are, are changing, which means that I think at the end of the day, you know, they're, they're, it's influencing what they think of success and that they carry that into the workplace. They carry that into family. They carry that into their community. And that could be a very different conversation to, um, you know, in these days as it was a decade or two 
when those definitions of success were essentially written by Gen Xers and baby boomers. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about the anxiety and the fear of homelessness, uh, one thing that struck me was that, you know, the, the greatest generation, not even the boomer generation, some in the boomer generation, were raised in a society with much clearer social safety nets. You know, if you grew up, you went to high school, you worked in a factory, you got a pension, you know, there was a path, you know, you could sort of take care of yourself. And it's, and, and, and those things exist less and less. We live in a society now where the number one cause of bankruptcy is medical care, you know, um, uh, and, and there's anxiety there. Um, and also, you know, and I, and I don't know that you would have addressed this in the study, but it strikes me that this is a generation that's going to school right now to learn a profession that AI is going to change dramatically within the next eight to 10 years. And, and they're encountering, I have daughters who are encountering that, you know, that they're just, they've, they, when I was talking to one of them and she has friends who work in an ad agency and they were fired mm. so that, you know, a chatbot could do their job. Um, and I just wonder to what degree this sort of living at a moment of, you know, societal transformation, technologically driven societal transformation uh, is likely to actually exacerbate what you're seeing now. And I, I, I acknowledge that's guesswork, but I'm just wondering what your reaction is. Yeah. I, I, I tell you something, I, the thing, like I noticed, I, I, I you know, I, I, I wrote a book that was published a year ago um, on Gen Z and I felt like the switch turned on for me when I started talking to the 17 and 18 year olds who are, you know, arguably the oldest members of this generation. And, and there, there had several factors I felt that were just different than millennials, just a few years older. Um, one is their, their openness to talk about the mental health challenges, but also the maturity that they had to talk about these mental health challenges, right. And their, in their interest in all of their pursuits of, of, of finding some harmony. Right and, 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 and balance and probably even instinctively perhaps right knowing that the instability that they feel today is something that will likely carry with them for 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 many many years right and that what's important isn't necessarily you know the stuff that you buy um, you know the the way in which a boomer or an Xer might think but what's really important is the bonds that you make with people. Right. And, 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 and what your definition of community is. So my sense is that through the chaos of the last decade or so that they've lived under, topped off by, by COVID, that they may be more prepared to live in this unstable environment than perhaps, you know, people like, you know, you or me might be. And, and I'll tell you something. In the last couple of months, the, the transformation that AIs had even on my industry, which I, was not predicting a few months ago is, 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 is pretty incredible, right? It's pretty incredible. How, um, how, when you think of, how, how is it? Edited? Well, the, the, uh, on, on, on the positive side is I can analyze a two hour focus group, David, in 10 minutes, right? You know, I run a transcript through a, a chat GPT pot and I can get a, I can, I can get a, a, a one page summary and that 
you know, would normally take me, you know, or a member of our team a day. Okay. You know, one example. Uh, another example is, um, I lean pretty heavily into qualitative research and even in my quantitative instruments. So I can ask, um, more detailed, qualitative, open-ended questions in a survey. And again, rather than waiting, you know, uh, a day or two for someone to code a couple thousand open ends, ChatGPT can do it, you know, in an instant. You know, it provides me more insight. And it also helps me as a researcher figure out what more I need to learn more quickly. You know what I mean? So those are just a couple of examples. And I'm not even talking about, you know, I'm not sure when it's going to be where, you know, um, some deep fake of me will be monitoring a focus group. Like that's going to be a reasonable expectation, you know, um, in the not too distant future. Something I, I wouldn't have dreamed of last time we did this podcast. You know, I, 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 I think it's true. I, I, I literally, I mean, the last time we did the pod, this podcast was right before the election. And I think right. in the period from the election last November through now, the awareness of this as a central issue in the lives to come of everybody has gone from zero to 60. You know, it's just astonishing. I've never seen anything in my life like it. No. Uh, I remember where I was. I remember where I was when I heard ChatGPT for the first time and used it for the first time. It was a, a Christmas dinner with my students. Okay. We had the year end banquet. So it was a week before Christmas. I don't think, you know, they were asking questions about Gen Z. And I don't think I'd seen it beforehand. And now that I'm kind of plugged in and thinking about this and talking to experts, I think what we're about to see and then by the by next Christmas will be even more transformative in terms of uh its its uh its capabilities from what I understand. But they're fluent in it. And I live in a town here in Washington. I was I, I did a TV show this morning and there were two senators on it and I happened to be talking to them. And I was like, you know, how many members of the Senate are literate enough in these kind of technology issues to actually have a discussion about this. And I said, I bet they couldn't fill that little cubicle over there. And one of the senators said they couldn't fill a phone booth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One of his aides acknowledged that he'd actually never used a phone booth. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> which, you know, sort of right. illustrated where we are with all this. But, you know, I, I wonder if that's not a sense of hope with this group because your students present this to you. They're fluent in this. None of this is a surprise to them. None of these, these people right. are living with this their whole lives. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I see that as a source of some optimism. Yeah, when, when I ask them why they're optimistic, David, right? And I, and I ask in any cohort, just not like my students or when I ask other students on other campuses or, or young people who aren't on college campuses, who, who didn't attend college, when I ask them what makes them hopeful, that they make themselves hopeful, right? It's their own community. And seeing the way, you know, um, that people responded, for example, to, to the murder of George Floyd, regardless of who you were, right? You were, you know, uh, you know, you, 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 you try to do something positive with that. That's something, um, I ask a question a lot in terms of like, when were you proud to be an American? What makes you proud to be American? And often what I hear is like Americans, you know, like individuals in, in the, kind of these communities. So, so, um, 
Yeah, it's just, you know, it's the fact that they don't see themselves often represented in this government. And when they do feel represented, you know, they are willing to do whatever it can, whatever it takes to kind of further engage. But, um, but you, you know, with that, you do make an interesting point where you sort of said Bernie Sanders. It's not the package of the messenger, it's the message of the messenger. And it's whether they seem to be willing to a- address big problems. When you take these studies and you present them to political professionals, are they taking it in? Mm. Is there a message that's getting through or not getting through? I'll tell you something. I've noticed in the last 12 to 18 months, significant interest in, in um, by elected officials having these conversations. And, and I think there's only one reason for that. I've been doing this for 22 years. Only one thing's changed, right? They start showing up. Right. They start flipping states from red to blue. Joe Biden's not in the White House. He understands that. His team understands that without both the combination of historic turnout and historic Democratic vote share in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Georgia last time. Right. Same thing with, with uh with Senator Schumer. So they're taking these meetings and honestly it was it was it was reported in uh, CNN today. Just last week I was in the White House with five of my students. Um, they briefed senior members of the of the Biden team for over an hour, and they did all the talking. I said hello, I said goodbye, a couple of introductions, and there was a real thirst by every member of that team, every member of that team, in 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 understanding the perspective of younger people through the eyes of um, of those five undergraduates who I'm so proud of, who who, who did tremendous job briefing this. But that's you know that's obviously the kind of the highest honor politically that they could that they, they could have, but they've had continued meetings with senators and and, and new members of Congress, new mayors, et cetera, who are interested in this. And um, that's 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 a good sign because we started this project, you know, David. Not to do, we didn't even have podcasts when I started this thing twenty two years ago. We started this thing because young people weren't voting, and it was like this vicious cycle. Young people weren't voting because they weren't being communicated with they weren't being communicated to because they weren't voting right so the objective of this was to increase civic engagement increase voting by elevating their voice and in, in showing that how this matters and um yeah our students have been in the white house for the last decade including the trump years you know so um but i think now though there's a recognition that it really does um they really actually need to hear and understand and they appreciate the um, the impact that this generation is having on their politics well, and on their jobs. Well, final question on that. And I don't want you to betray any confidences, but what what do people in the White House or senior officials, what do they zero in on? Like, what about these studies really triggers them? Well, what's unique about this study is that it's not just me now and kind of older white guy asking these questions, right? I'm asking I'm, I'm crafting the methodology for young people to hear the answers to the questions that they, that they're concerned about, right? So that's the trick here. And that's what the, that's what, for example, the folks in the White House wanted to hear. They want to understand mental health from their perspective. Okay. They want to see, you know, uh, the differences that may or may not exist based upon level of education, based upon where you live, based upon socioeconomic demographic things. They were particularly concerned, too, about this idea of the American dream, right? You know, and, and the concerns about homelessness. 
So they really want to kind of delve really deeply in. Trust me, they didn't want to hear from me. You know, they hear from enough people like me. They really wanted to hear from young people because of the proximity from the, of the, the, the proximity that they have to each of these issues, you know, why they feel concerned, why they defend other, other people who are more vulnerable themselves, what it feels like when they walk into a school and their concerns about gun violence and mass shooting. I do the best I can to translate those, but they want to hear from the original proximate source. Well, I, you know, I mean, it's a remarkable accomplishment and there's a lot to be proud of there. It's very clear that a chatbot will replace you. Um, soon. <laughs> you know, once, once, once we get all this wired into it, if they're doing most of the talking, but, uh, you know, the, the good news is, you know, 200 years from now, you can still be running this group, um, or, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> chatbot. uh, anyway, you know, I, I, I really, really thank you for uh, joining us. I admire the work you're doing enormously. Um, how can the listeners, uh, uh, get the survey? Well, um, all of the data is available for you know 22 years at um, the uh, Institute of Politics website. So it's iop.harvard.edu. Um, there's a great video. It's a three-minute video that our students made. Um, that is great. All the cross subs, all of that is there. Um, I post a lot of this on my Twitter handle. Um, and uh, I, I just started a, a sub stack where I'm publishing a lot of other data um, as well. JDV on Gen Z. Uh, on Substack. Um, so um, a lot of places and, and uh, I love to hear any feedback or any questions that folks think we should be asking or they want to know about Gen Z. Super important. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will go straight there. They should. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to continue to talk to you going forward because I find this fascinating and the work super admirable. So thank you very much, John. Thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, we'll be back with you again real soon because we do this every day. Uh, if you like it, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership and, uh, and you know, for five bucks a month, you can support us being able to do it. It's just like a sub stack. It's like John's sub stack, anybody's sub stack, uh, but it, it allows us to keep doing all this stuff. So please do that. And thanks again. Bye-bye.